Hello and welcome to day four or five or something. Another day Halloween. of. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the latest day of our Halloween terror spooktacular celebration. The name has not got any better. Nope. <laughs> Today I'm taking you all to the twin cities of Texarkana and back to a case which has gone unsolved more than 70 years and has been described as the number one unsolved murder case in texas history wow that's that's a big deal yeah i'm cat if you haven't worked it out because i forgot to say at the start i'm not i'm the other one that's taylor (laughs) do you know this case at all no nothing good yeah so i'm hearing it all for the first time with you (laughs) so Texarkana is a bit like the two Kansas cities Texarkana is a border town straddling the state line between Texas and Arkansas or Kansas as it should be pronounced yes yes indeed and nobody on the city naming committee was feeling particularly imaginative that day so they named it after the two states and technically it is two cities with two jurisdictions but they all blend into one Mm -hmm. it is about 15 miles north of the tri-state border of texas arkansas and louisiana i would love to find out what they would have called a city that sat on that border (laughs) uh texa texa canarana canarana or lexarkana lux Locks, locks, Arcana. It's just full of smoked salmon. Yum. Oh my God. I'm hungry. <laughs> Way back on the night of February 22nd, 1946, 25 year old Jimmy Hollis and his 19 year old girlfriend, Mary Jane Larry, were on their way home from the cinema when they decided to pack up along a local lover's lane, mm. as you did at the time. And whilst they were doing whatever it was that young people do in a lover's lane back in uh, 1946. Wink, wink. Uh, They were holding hands and singing along to the Everly Brothers. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) A man approached their car wearing a white mask, which resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out, and he shined a torch through the driver's side door. Nope. Jimmy Hollis just thought this was a prank told the man he had the wrong car to which the man replied i don't want to kill you so do what i say nope yeah got real bad real quick yep the masked man ordered the couple out of the car holding them at gunpoint he instructed jimmy to strip out of his clothes he then hit him twice in the head with the butt of his pistol cracking his skull and mary jane would later tell investigators that the noise was so loud that she thought he'd been shot. Oh. Uh, Mary Jane thought that the man just wanted to rob them, so she offered up Jimmy's wallet to prove that they had no money, but the man then hit her with a blunt object. I can understand that because if someone's got a mask on, they don't want you to see their face, so the implication is that they're going to let you go. Yeah. They're not going to kill you. Yeah. Sort of thing. So I can, I can understand where she, where she thought it was just like a robbery. Mm-hmm. He hit her in the head. He then told her to stand and then told her to run. Hmm. 
So stand still, run. So she took off towards a parked car just down the road, but then found it empty. The masked man caught up to her, sexually assaulted her with the barrel of his gun. No, that is not a euphemism. Yeah. The attacker then fled. Mary Jean ran to the nearest house, which was about 100 yards away, managed to wake up the residents and get them to call the police. Jimmy, meanwhile, with a cracked skull, had managed to regain consciousness, crawl to the main road and flag down a passing car. Damn. The driver left Jimmy at the roadside but drove to a nearby funeral home and phoned for the police. The couple were hospitalised. Mary Jean was released the following day, but Jimmy was treated for 12 days for a severe head wound. The couple gave conflicting reports about what the attacker looked like. This is interesting. So Mary Jean said that the man was African-American, whereas Jimmy claimed he was white. Both agreed he was about six foot tall, and they said in his 30s, but he had a pillowcase over his head, so I don't know how they could age him. Yeah. I mean... You could, okay, you could tell around the eye holes, like, what his skin colour was. Yeah. But I don't see how you'd be able to age someone. Maybe by the voice? But, I mean, you're getting into tenuous territory there. Yeah. Authorities were suspicious of Mary Jean's account and believed that she knew the identity of the masked attacker but was covering from him. But nothing ever came from this. No. In most places... This would have been pretty big news. Young couple violently attacked one night. But it turns out that Texarkana was quite a violent place in the 1940s. Murder and other violent crime were really common. It even had the nickname Little Chicago. And of course, especially, you know, Prohibition era, Al Capone, all of that, Chicago was known for its high level of violence and murders. So yeah, Little Chicago. The story made the local papers, but it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, and everyone just went on with their lives, basically. Until just over a month later. You know, it's bad when there's an until. Until. However. But then. Yeah, and how dramatic I decide to be with it. On the morning of March 24th, 29-year-old Richard Griffin and his 17-year-old girlfriend, Polly Ann Moore, weird age gap, is my first comment on that. Uh-huh. He's 29 and she's 17. It's 12 years. Yeah. It's not the fact that it's 12 years. It's the fact that she's so young. Yeah. And it's 12 years. If she was 29 and he was 41, it wouldn't be so bad. True. Yes. Because she's 17. Under age plus 12 years. Yeah. Anyway, the couple were found dead in Griffin's car. The car had been parked all night on, would you know it, a lover's lane. Mm. And at first, passers-by thought that the couple were just asleep. Richard was slumped between the front two seats with his head in his hands, and Pollyanne was sprawled out across the back seats. Uh, The couple was last seen around 10pm the previous night when they had dinner with Richard's sister. Both Richard and Pollyanne had been shot in the back of the head, so... I can see how you wouldn't immediately see that injury yeah. and maybe think that they were just sort of asleep. Sleeping. Yeah. There was a bloody patch of grass near the car, which indicated that the two had been shot outside the car and then placed back inside it. Hmm. 
There were numerous rumours that Pollyanne had been sexually assaulted, but there was no autopsy, so that was never like confirmed or denied. And there's no mention of it in police reports. So I think it's just comes from local gossip. Mm-hmm. The couple were found fully clothed, so, you know, if it was, if there was an assault, they were then dressed afterwards. Mm-hmm. Although Richard's pockets were turned out, which led people... Uh, led people to believe that it was a robbery that had gone wrong. The murders again made the local news and the press nicknamed the murderer the Phantom Killer. But people still weren't paying that much attention. Even the police hadn't linked the two crimes at this point. Uh, A $500 reward had been offered for information leading to a conviction, which in today's money would be $6,164 or £4,750. More than 200 leads and suspects were investigated, but nothing came of them. Until. Until. (laughs) Three weeks later, when a third young couple were attacked. On April 13th, 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker had been playing saxophone in a band at the local veterans of foreign wars club it was a regular saturday night gig for the group she was picked up by her friend 17 year old paul martin Uh, this was the last last time the two were seen alive and the next morning at about 6 30 paul's body was found on the edge of a local park he had been shot four times through the nose the hands the rib and then finally in the back of the neck. Ouch. That's... Ouch. That's... I don't know what order... Yeah. ...the bullets went in. You'd think the nose or the back of the neck at least would be fatal. Yes. The hand you trust trying to hurt someone. Yeah. The ribs, depending whereabouts it is, isn't necessarily going to kill you. No. Betty Jo's body was not found until a few hours later, almost two miles away from where Paul's body was found. She had been shot in the chest and the face, and she had been sexually assaulted. The bullets matched those that came from the murders of Polly Ann and Richard. Both couples had been killed with a 32 caliber automatic Colt pistol. So, finally, after three attacks, two young people seriously wounded and four dead, people began to pay attention. Finally. The, yeah, the crimes were all linked together and the only description law enforcement had of the attacker was the conflicting descriptions given by Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Leary. Uh, The reward fund grew to $1,700 or $24,000 in today's money for information on the double murders, but still no viable suspects were found. Local law enforcement said that the press coverage was a hindrance in the investigation. Texarkana suddenly went into panic mode. Everyone bought a gun, which it's Texas. I do not believe that there were people out there who didn't have a gun. Didn't already have a gun, yeah. They bought extras. Yeah. And if you approach someone's home, you had to identify yourself or you would likely be shot. At the time, many men worked away from home. So wives, girlfriends would pack up the children and take themselves into the 
very unfortunately named Grim Hotel in downtown Texarkana until their partners returned home because they were so fearful of being alone. Three weeks after the murder of Betty Jo and Paul, a fourth couple was targeted. On April 3rd, the phantom struck at a remote farmhouse about 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. Now, I'm not entirely sure on this, but I think that means it would be in Arkansas because the border is pretty much kind of straight up and down at this like part of the border. So I think northeast should, in theory, be in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. The farm was owned by 37-year-old Virgil Starks and his 35-year-old wife, Katie. About 9pm that night, Virgil was sitting in the living room. He was listening to the radio and Katie was in the bedroom. Katie heard what she thought sounded like breaking glass outside the farmhouse and so she called out to Virgil to turn the radio down, assuming so that they could then figure out what it was. Mm-hmm. But seconds later, Virgil was shot twice. Katie obviously went to see what on earth had happened and when she saw that Virgil had been shot, she tried to call the police but she was shot twice in the face. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear and the second entered just below her lip, breaking her jaw, splintering several teeth and lodging under her tongue. Oh, there is a reason I've gone into that much detail. She survived that. Damn. So she went to get her own gun, but collapsed. Couldn't see because she's like blinded by all this blood that's pouring from her face. And she then heard the killer leave the farmhouse. So I don't know if the killer assumed that when she collapsed, she had then died as well. She just died, yeah. Um. Anyway, so once she was sure that the killer had gone, she ran to the neighbor's house, still with the bullet lodged under her tongue, managed to say Virgil's dead and then she collapsed again damn there has been a lot of debate over the years as to whether or not this was the same attacker as the three previous couples Virgil and Katie were older than all of the other couples and this attack was in their home rather than a car and the weapon used in the attack on the Starks was a 22 caliber rather than a 32 that was used in the previous attacks, but it has been widely accepted as being the final attack of the Texarkana Phantom Murderer. Hmm. Um, It's kind of just, as it's gone unsolved, they can't prove anyone did it, so it's kind of just settled into law that they were victims of the Phantom. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's four attacks, five deaths, three horrendous injuries in less than three months. Law enforcement didn't have any viable suspects. Extra officers were drafted in. Even the Texas Rangers were brought in, which apparently is a big deal, but I don't really know what the Texas Rangers were because I didn't go into it, but I'm assuming from the look on your face you can help on this one. Well, Walker, Texas Ranger, one Chuck Norris, was a badass. No, Um, The Texas Rangers are like an elite investigative group in the state. Uh, I don't know if they're the same as like state police, essentially, but right. they are, especially in the past, they've been sort of very well known for being like very high quality law enforcement and like uh, getting good results. So yeah, 
Texas Rangers brought in uh, undercover officers dressed as young couples to try and, you know, lure the, the killer out. But there were no leads and no more attacks. And after two months with no attacks, no killings, the people of Texarkana began to return to normal, so to speak. There was less fear and slowly the rangers and the extra officers quietly left the city. Hmm. Two years later, 21-year-old Mary Virginia Carpenter disappeared from Texarkana. Uh, her body has never been found and she remains a missing person to this day. Now, some people say that she was murdered by the Phantom Killer as she knew three of the victims. But this has never been substantiated in any way and it's just kind of a bit of a, a footnote in the Phantom investigation mm-hmm. i mean she was obviously treated as a as a missing person and there was a proper investigation done but it's kind of mentioned as a bit of a footnote to the others because there's nobody they don't know what happened to her so yeah more than 400 people were arrested in connection with the phantom crimes yeah. uh, despite this the phantom has never been caught now there have been two main suspects in the texacana phantom murders uh, and these are, these two suspects have sort of, you know, stood the test of time, so to speak. The first was 18-year-old college student H.B. Doody Tennyson. What a name. In November 1948, so two and a half years after the attacks, Tennyson ended his own life in his bedroom in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And in a suicide note, he left. He claimed responsibility for the murders of Betty Joe and Paul, and the murder of Virgil and attempted murder of Katie, but made no mention of the attack on Mary Jean and Jimmy or Pollyanna and Richard. In his note, he claimed that guilt had led him to end his own life. According to his cousin, he had links to most of the victims. Links is a strong word. He was an usher at a theatre that most of the victims had attended and he was in the same band as Betty Jo. Hmm. And one of his friends lived in the same building as Katie Stark's sister. That Very one's... tenuous links. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's not a link, that's a coincidence. Yeah. So you're in the same band as someone, okay, he was the same age as Betty Jo. So if they went to school together, of course they could have been in the same band. And also, like, I think the really sort of Okay, one is the the one of his friends lived in the same building as Katie Stark's sister. It's like yeah, a friend of a friend of a friend knows a cousin of a friend of a friend. Yeah, it's it's not very convincing. Like say that that literally is a coincidence. Yeah, when you look into it, oh well, he had a friend who lived in the same building as the sister of one of the victims. It's not gripping, and I like it's. I'm assuming it's not like the biggest place in the world either so of course you're gonna get overlap so yeah and the same as like oh he was an usher at a theater well of course you're gonna come into contact with like hundreds of people then aren't you yeah doesn't mean that you know all of them especially in the 40s you're gonna come into contact with most of the population of the town yeah and this is where you know the the missing you know the missing girl um Mm -hmm. virginia carpenter comes in because she also knew some of the phantoms victims and so it was rumored that they all knew each other 
and were all known to the killer rather than them being random attacks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, supposedly. But again, like you say, it's not a big town. It's not a, a big city. There's overlap. Of course, you're going to know people. Yeah. But yeah, so that is kind of how uh, she gets linked in with the Phantoms Killers is because she knew some of them and then they're like, oh, well, they all must have known each other and known the killer. And mm-hmm. it, it seems very tenuous to me. It, it's a bit clutching at straws. And, and like I say, yeah. it, it's more just coincidences. There is also speculation about the suicide note and how genuine it was. Um, as H.B. Judy Tennyson's cousin was the only person who knew about all these supposed links between him and the victims and the victims and each other. And more notes were actually found in his possessions that contradicted the confession. Mm. So there was like the supposed suicide note and then there was loads of other notes he'd written previous. So it's a bit of a mess. Yeah. And a friend of his, James Freeman, also came forward after hearing about the suicide note and said that he and Tennyson had been together on the night of Virgil Stark's murder and that they had heard about the murders that night while whilst playing cards. Mm. Uh, one of Tennyson's brothers also said that he hadn't learnt to drive until 1947, so it was unlikely that he could have been out killing people and getting away so easily, especially somewhere more rural, like the Stark's farmhouse, with, you know, no means of escape or a getaway car or... You know, it's a 10-mile trek outside of town. It's not yeah. It's not just nipping down the road, is it? No. Tennyson did have access to guns, but none of them matched the guns using the murders, and his fingerprints did not match any recovered from the crime scenes. Seems a bit fishy. Of a stretch. Yeah. Now, the second suspect was a man named U.L. Lee Swinney, He was already known locally as a counterfeiter and a petty thief, and he seems to be the favoured suspect. So rookie Arkansas trooper Max Tackett had noticed that around the same time as all of the attacks, cars were being stolen as well. Hmm. So they began staking out parking lots in downtown Texarkana. And on June 28th, they observed a stolen car being abandoned. And they arrested the driver. And that was 21-year-old Peggy Swinney, who had married 29-year-old UL Swinney just hours earlier. (laughs) She told officers that UL was in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. Atlanta, Texas? Yes, it's a thing. Oh, good Lord. Also, what kind of wedding day is that? That, you know, you get married and then... You both go to different places to to get rid of stolen cars. I mean, at least do it together. Like the couple that steals and disposes of cars together stays together, right? (laughs) Well, maybe they should have done just that because... You wouldn't have gotten caught. Yep. Let's let's just see what happened when they did get caught. Uh Uh-oh. Tackett contacted Atlanta law enforcement and found reports of a man from out of town uh, who had been trying to sell what they suspected was a stolen car. He asked the man who Swinney had tried to sell the car to if he would recognise the seller again. The witness said he probably wouldn't, 
this man that he tried to sell the car to actually had quite a distinctive appearance pretty much a full cowboy get up you know the denim the boots and the spurs and the hat everything mm-hmm. you know so Tackett thought that Swinney might recognize the witness and try to avoid him so he and the witness went to the Arkansas motor station in Texarkana which is basically a bus terminal uh, to kind of hang around and see uh, who got off of the coach from Atlanta mm-hmm. so a man got off the Atlanta coach, saw them, and then tried to hightail it out of there. <laughs> Tackett caught up with him, and it was none other than UL Swinney. He was arrested for the car theft, but when Tackett arrested him, he said, you know, please don't shoot me, to which he was like, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars. And Swinney then replied, Mr. Don't play games with me. You want me for more than just stealing cars. Hmm... That's interesting. Mm. Yes. Isn't it just? Mm-hmm. Uh, whilst in custody, Peggy Sweeney gave multiple accounts of how her new husband had committed the murders. Though Peggy made varying statements about her own involvement in the murders, in some accounts she was sat in the car while you know, he went for a pee in the bushes and then she heard gunshots... But it took him an hour to come back to the car. His clothes were damp. They drove away at high speed. The inference being that he'd been washing bloody clothes in the lake. Hmm. Also, like, who who the fuck? Like, it's like, okay, I'm going to go for a pee. And then you're sat waiting for like an hour. Hour. Yeah. Without getting suspicious. Yeah. Really? I'd either have gone to see where they were or just got so bored I'd moved the car just to fuck with them. <laughs> see i was thinking like go check if they were okay but practical jokes that works too yeah i ain't going down to no lake in the dark <laughs> on my own um in other versions she helped him search the young couples for money and it was you know just robbery gone wrong in another statement, she said that Sweeney had told her he was going to the park to rob someone and she just tagged along with him. How fun. She said they found Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker. Uh, Sweeney pointed a gun at the couple telling them to get out of the car. In this particular version, Peggy said that she refused to help help him search for money. And this angered Sweeney, so he shot Paul. And then she helped him to take Betty Jo hostage and they drove a couple of miles west, uh, shot Paul twice more, even though he was already dead, and dumped the body, and then dragged Betty Jo into the woods. But in this particular version, Betty Jo is obviously still alive. She hasn't been shot yet. Peggy just waited near the car while Swinney went off and killed Betty. She, you know, had no part in this, apparently. But when he returned, he told Peggy that he tried to have sex with Betty Jo, but when she refused, he raped her and shot her. None of these accounts match up, uh-huh. you know. They're, they're so different. She she varies her own level of involvement. She varies what she knows. It's very messy. It's all over the place. Yoel Swinney did own a thirty-two caliber gun, but he claimed he had lost it in a craps game shortly before his arrest. Convenient. Yeah, isn't it just? Uh-huh. Uh, clothes were found in his possession that had belonged to the Starks. Well, that's suspicious. 
just a bit. That one's that that's a big red flag. However, just like the first suspect, uh, Tennyson, uh, Swinney's fingerprints didn't match any of those found at the crime scenes. And he never made any comment to police about the accusations of him being the Phantom. He never even pleaded his innocence. He just stayed completely silent on the matter, which is interesting. Yeah. But the burden of proof is on law enforcement and the prosecution. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. As the accused, it's their job to prove. What they assume about you. Yeah. It's their job to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not up to you to prove innocence. Yeah. Technically. Soon though, Peggy stopped cooperating with authorities and eventually recanted her confession completely. Uh, Because the two had gotten married just, I think it was like two hours before Peggy was arrested, they couldn't be forced to testify against each other. The police ultimately just could not verify Peggy's claims that her husband was the Texarkana Phantom. Despite working flat out for six months just on the claims that Peggy made. Wow. And eventually, police found testimony to suggest that the two uh, were in San Antonio in Texas when Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker were murdered. So they definitely couldn't have done that one. They couldn't have have committed that crime, that Mm -hmm. murder or those murders. But, I mean, there is also a possibility that it could have been a a copycat. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, unless you find a serial killer, you you can't prove that all of the crimes are linked. And sometimes look at um, the confession killer, Henry Lee Lucas, mm-hmm. who, you know, they just threw all these crimes at him. And he was like, oh, yeah, I did this. Yeah, I did this. So there's loads of crimes that were technically solved, but really they weren't because he didn't do them. Yeah. So sometimes just because they take place close together doesn't mean they're that they're all related. Yeah. Um. The Swinneys were sentenced for auto theft. Peggy served a short sentence and was then released, but UL was sentenced to life because he was a habitual criminal, which I only found out about this a few days ago. Hmm. So if you are a habitual criminal in certain states, you can be sentenced to 25 to life just for being a habitual criminal. So it could just be like petty theft or something, but if you do it enough times... Mm-hmm. Eventually, they can put you away for life, as I understand it. It's kind of like a three strikes law, except just some strikes and you're in jail. <laughs> I think generally it's more than three strikes. Yeah. But yeah, because is a three strikes, is that like a, the same crime three times or something in some states? I think I think it's either the same crime or crimes escalating in severity, maybe. Oh, anyway. If you are a habitual criminal, you can be sentenced to life. So look out. Yeah. So he served 25 years and was paroled in 1973. And he died in a nursing home in Dallas in 1994 at the age of 77. And we have no idea what became of his wife, Peggy Swinney. Hmm. So that is the case of the Texarkana Phantom murders. Thoughts? Comments? Questions? (sighs) That's tough. Like, I think the thing that stands out most to me is that there were, he had clothes that belonged to one of the couples. That's weird. But I don't, 
I don't know. And then, like, so he was released in 1973. He would have been 50-something, right? Yeah, 56. Yeah. So, like, if it was really him, would he have just stopped killing after prison? Like, Good question. I suppose it depends because there's never... There's no sort of motivation or anything no, that's like known for these these crimes. There's no communication with the press from the killer. Yeah, it's just There's, sort of... Like I said, the, the links between the victims themselves are just very tenuous. Yeah. So it's difficult to pick out like an exact motive other than just being a straight up psychopath. Yeah. Or sociopath, depending upon his disposition. And then you've got different victimology as well in that... Uh, Virgil and Katie Starks were an older, older couple. They lived outside of town. It was in their home, not in the car. That's the one that stands out to me as well. And maybe I could see Swinney or the Swinneys maybe committing those two murders because they have the clothes in their possession, right? But then the mm. other, the other yeah. ones are someone else. Yeah. I think they were definitely involved in that. Yeah. Because... They say they were found with with their possessions. Yeah. At the so, very least, they had to been at the house in some capacity. Yeah, the other murders, I don't know. The other ones seem more similar to one another, like the Starks. Yeah, they're very um, almost like uh, the early like Zodiac killings, going after like the young couples. That's what I was thinking. It's very sort of stereotypical of your like golden age of serial yeah. killers type of thing you know like the the ones that like the slasher films yes. are all based on you know like it, teenagers in a lover's lane yeah. and things like that that's exactly what it was reminding me of when you were describing those ones so yeah it's very very much like like that yeah. to me i i think they would do there was two yeah. killers i think so too i um, don't think it was this 18 year old or how how old was no duty tennyson yeah. 18. Like, that doesn't make sense. Well, no, actually, sorry, he was 18 when he died. When he, died he would have been, was that two years after the, the murder? So he'd only been 16. This doesn't seem plausible. Yeah, so he was 18 when he killed himself in November 1948. And the murders took place in 46. Yeah. I think I'm getting my years confused. So. Yeah, 46. So he would have been 16 young whereas ul swinney would have been 27 yeah that sounds yeah. more likely yeah. to me definitely so yeah that is the case of the texarkana phantom murders thank you for listening come back tomorrow when taylor's gonna tell a story yes. which i'm looking forward yeah. to i have no idea what she's i don't i haven't even looked at the plan i don't even know what your story <laughs> is so I'm excited. A surprise. And uh, yeah. Thank you for listening. And we will be back yep. tomorrow. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.